Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And I should also be saying, and your boy on Instagram at MMALOTM, because I'm really picking up my activity on the IG side of things as well. But this week, we are going over UFC Vegas 50, headlined by Magomed Ankalaev and Tiago Santos. I'd be surprised if Uncle Live doesn't find himself in a title fight if he's able to go out there and get a win this weekend. And then on the flip side with Tiago Santos, you'll be able to get on a two-fight winning streak if he's able to get the victory here over the Russian Magomed Ankalaev. But a couple other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card, man. Uh, I'm very excited for the majority of this card. We got Alex Pereira versus uh, Bruno Silva. We got Song Yadong against Marlon Moraes. We got Drew Dober against Terrence McKenney. We got, uh, what other fights we got here? Sabina Mazo versus Miranda Maverick. Um, couple other fights here i want to shout out a couple more because again i feel like this is a damn good fight night card uh khalil roundtree against uh, carl roberson alex caceres against sodiq yusuf the names keep coming the entertainment value keeps coming and i think that uh this card will more than likely deliver uh once we see it go down but the first thing we always do before we get into anything in the podcast is the accountability is the transparency talking about our last bets talking about the last picks from the last event from ufc 272 and we ended up with uh slight profit on the event and i believe i also let me just make sure i get this right uh, i didn't do too bad with the predictions either let me just quickly see uh where we're at for that uh we got one two uh two and one three and one three and two three and three kennedy and Zuchuku won that fight three and four yan jardan won that fight uh four and four five and four six and four six and five seven and five eight and five so eight and five on prediction not not bad not bad um again the, the yan Nan fight could have gone either way and the kennedy and zachuku fight definitely should have gone to the kennedy and zachuku side so let's get into the actual bets though we'll start off with the lock of the night play which hits first fight of the night dustin jacoby starts off a little slow then ends up picking it up in the second and third rounds taking home a decision victory we find out afterwards that he had injured his foot or his legs or something and was not able to do cardio and that's why he didn't throw almost no kicks in that fight uh, which is something that is very much known for. I was very, you know, I was sweating a lot, especially considering how little kicks he was throwing in that fight, as I thought that would help him kind of establish his range and his distance management. Luckily, his veteran instincts pulled off, especially in that third round where he's able to control Oleg Shejak up against the cage and really just wear on him and make it look good for the judges, allowing him to take home a victory and allowing us to cash that lock of the night play. Again, four units at minus 194, cashes for plus 2.06 units, so good win there. Let's talk about the other win. We had one unit on Rafael Dos Anjos, who went out there and did what he needed to do. Good job for him, defeating Hanato Moikano via decision, although it got a little scary in that fifth round. Uh, and then on the flip side with Colby Covington, come on, guys. If you're trying to make a case for Jorge Masvidal, y'all are berserk. Y'all are crazy. Colby Covington was going to go and do that no matter what and again i get it masvidal clipped him in that fourth round oh my god he clipped him but that seemed to happen in almost any single any fight any 25 minute fight right it happened in the dos años moicano fight it happened in edwards versus diaz there's always going to be that one glimmer of hope for the big underdog 
but I just think that Covington is too durable to have fallen to something like that. So, uh, yeah, glad to cash that probably one unit at plus 101. That catches for 101 units. Uh, and then we had a couple losses. So the first one was the dog of the night play, Yan Zhaonan, one unit at plus 215. That comes down to a split decision. MMA decisions has it down the middle. Media scorecards, fan scoring. I think fan scoring actually had it in favor of Yan Zhaonan. But again, split decision, very, very close fight. Happy with the value that I was able to get on Yan Zhao Nana plus 215. And th there's a perfect example of when you look at value over who you think is going to win. And this this past weekend was the perfect example of that, where you have Yan Zhao Nan plus 215 underdog. Everybody's like, Marina Rodriguez is going to win, doesn't matter. And she wins. But she wins in a very close fight that could have gone either way. And then on the flip side, Tegiru Lumbeko versus Tim Elliott, a fight that I had no action on because I was obviously aware of how close that fight actually was. And that shows you where the value lays, right? Obviously, the people taking the, taking the Tim Elliott side saw the value in how close this fight could potentially be. And they get the bounce their way. They get the cash their tickets. Everybody parlaying Ulimbekov is like, oh, man, I didn't see that coming. What do you mean? <laughs> His first two fights were super close. It, 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 again that that's that's what i mean by value when you see a fight that close taking the plus money is not that bad of an idea there's other spots that you can go out there and parlay you can parlay fucking uh uh Rafael dos Santos. you can parlay kobe covington you can parlay dustin jacoby because i thought those fights were much wider than what we saw from the ulimbekov and elliott fight so yeah if you're sitting on monday with the crash ticket that included ulimbekov you heard it all week from people saying that it was going to be a close fight and you still took the shot on the, the favorite there, the, the hefty favorite on Ulibekov. Either way, uh, minus one unit on the dog of the night play. Then we had minus 1.5 units on a, a little bit of a degenerate parlay that I put together. Um, it had Covington, which cast, Holland that cast, uh, Hardy and Spivak fight doesn't go to decision that cast. And then the last play that crashed was Smith and Klein fight doesn't go to decision. Um, yeah, plenty of finishing opportunities from both guys. Uh, to me, it looked like Klein was just trying to hold on to his job. I believe he lost two straight fights. And even though he took the fight on short notice, it seemed he wanted to do whatever it took to secure that uh, his position in the UFC by clinching Devontae Smith up against the cage, even after having her, him hurt on numerous occasions. So that was minus 1.5 units there. All in all, plus 0.57 units on the night, 8% ROI. Again, happy to end in the green, but we want more bags than just 0.57 units. I did cash a couple Hail Mary parlays as well. Uh, shout out to the guys on the Patreon. Cash on the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons as well, which is a parlay chosen by my patrons. I put um, uh, a certain percentage of my Patreon take on that parlay. If the parlay cashes, I send the winnings to a random Patreon member, which is exactly what I did yesterday. So shout out to the guys on the Patreon, which is great because that leads me to my next segue, which is, uh, or segues me to my next topic, which is the Patreon. Five bucks a month. Link is in the description below. Best value you're going to get on the market. Um, I put a ton of work into that best bets and props article early access to these breakdowns prize picks tips a great discord community um uh, the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons where i give back to all you guys as well and then i have this experiment that i'm actually working on uh, i haven't talked to anybody really about it other than a couple of folks and obviously everybody that's on the patreon but it's a uh, the kelly criterion if anybody's familiar with that i've heard about it a lot in the past never really took it and put it into my style of betting but there is an experiment that i've been trying since the beginning of the year with the kelly criterion and the picks and the percentages that i'm putting out there right now it's uh after 
six or seven events it's up about a unit and a half the one big swing was having a ton of units on dennis bondera obviously a couple of events ago that crashed obviously with malcolm gordon getting the finish there but if that had cashed uh kelly criterion would probably be uh sticking at about plus 12 units on the year as well again i'm not trying to tout that um it's just an experiment even if you guys want to go on bet mma tips and look it up it's under kellock k-e-l-o-c-k that's going to be that's on the bet mma tips i'm only on there for that to track it and if it does well no i'm not going to flip on over to that bet mma tips and keep going on with that i will take those uh the things that i've learned from using the kelly and place it onto my own and hopefully that will start to uh you know make things better as well but for now i'm going to keep going with my regular style of betting my for my official picks and then the the kelly betting is just going to be something separate again uh no official picks there but more so an experiment than anything all that can be found on the patreon link in the description below five bucks a month and again obviously early access to my official plays already have the lock of the night play placed already have uh another parlay placed dog of the night is just waiting on price changes right now and once the odds get better on the specific play i'll be pulling the trigger on that more than likely by the day i send this out to the public or give my picks to the public for free on friday this parlay is or or the parlay and even my lock of the night play more than likely won't be at the same odds that i got them at so the sooner you guys hop on them the 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 better they'll be but again the picks are just a cherry on top for my patreon the patreon is mainly early access and getting way more in-depth uh analysis about a lot of these fights and then lastly shout out to coolbet coolbet.com use promo code mmaltn2 that's the number two they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks and a great website uh, you can parlay props usually they have kind of inaccurate lines at times that you can take advantage of so that's something positive about them as well uh, and they've been nothing but good to your boy as well so shout out to coolbet again promo code mmaltn2 that's the number two They'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. All right, let me quit the jibber jabber. And I feel like this intro is going on forever, but I had a couple of things I need to explain. I had a couple of things that I need to get off my chest, but let's get right into the breakdowns. I'll see you guys on the flip side for the outro. Azamat Mirzakhanov versus Tafan and Chukwi. We got minus 165 on uh, Mirzakhanov and plus 145 the return on Tafan, Dadan, and, uh, and Chukwi. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if uh, Don is Tafan's nickname, but it would be damn cool if it is because it flows so perfectly. But uh, in regards to this matchup, he is now fighting at uh, light heavyweight for the second time in a row. Uh, last time around, he was successful in his trip to the octagon, taking on Mike Rodriguez as a minus 120 favorite and uh, pretty much mopped the floor with Rodriguez for the majority of that 15 minutes, taking home a decision victory. Before that was his experiment at 185 pounds, where he won his debut at 185 pounds against Jamie Pickett, but then followed it up with the stinker against Junyoung Park, where he ended up losing that fight via majority decision. He also got a point taken away in that fight as well. <clears throat> Regardless, uh, one thing that we saw in that fight was his speed just didn't really hold up at 185 pounds and Park was able to get to the punches a lot quicker than him. And then the longer that the fight went on, it seemed like Nchukwi's gas tank was really starting to slow down and Park was able to take over with takedowns and clinch control later in that fight, allowing him to take home that decision victory, like I said. 
But the the fight against Rodriguez, I, I hope it doesn't push people too far back onto the Tafan side because that was a great stylistic matchup for him, right? He was able to use his pace uh, and, and use, uh, or sorry, he was able to dictate the pace and really put uh, the hurting on Rodriguez. You know, I think he landed upwards of 100 significant strikes. And although that looks good on paper, a lot of it had to do with the fact with Rodriguez just allowing him to fight his fight fighting at that kickboxing range or getting into the clinch and eventually landing takedowns. Tafan was in control of that fight from minute one to minute 15. No fans or buts. But he's going to be facing some resistance here in Azamat uh, Mirzakhanov, who's a great or a solid striker in his own right, but he's very fast and his cardio is very good. And I think those are the two main things that Tafan is very much going to struggle with in this situation. As a matter when he knocks his opponents out, which he's done time and time again, he closes the distance very quickly, uses a, a, his overhand right more often than not, and that's able to land on the chin of his opponents, dropping them to the floor, and he more than often follows up with some ground and pound. But he has power in both hands, right? We saw him knock out his uh, contender series uh, fighter, uh, Kershaw, I believe his name was. I, I might be off on that. But either way, he, he knocked him out with a right hand left hook, and it was a beautiful combination, which ultimately ended the night of his opponent. And earned the contract for Mirzakhanov as well. Mirzakhanov has had a couple fights fall off now, uh, but I'm glad that we'll see him, knock on wood, we'll see him this weekend, and hopefully he can go out there and show us what he's actually made of. The guy's fun to watch as a light heavyweight, right? He's not a huge light heavyweight. He's very mobile. Um, his cardio is great. We saw him go up against Guto and Assange uh, a couple of fights ago uh, in an open weight tournament, and he was able to land the takedowns when he needed it. Uh, obviously, the size was a huge discrepancy there, but it didn't... Uh, really falter uh, Mirzakhanov in terms of trying to take, uh, land those takedowns and drag the fight to the floor. And I think that's what he's going to be able to do here against Stefan in terms of, you know, he can strike with him for a little bit if he wants, but there are often times where you see Tafan kind of overextending on shots and really just putting a lot of power into those shots, which I think would be perfect counter opportunities for Mirzakhanov to land takedowns or even push him up against a cage, has some success in that spot. I think Mirzakhanov will do a good job in terms of wearing on Tafan early in this fight again cage clinch or even takedowns and then the longer that this fight goes i think we'll see Mirzakhanov really start to you know put it together with the takedowns and ground and pound on top and i think he'll eventually finish him later on in this fight i think asma has a solid um uh, solid potential and solid ceiling inside the UFC, especially considering how agile he is, right? That he moves very well. He's very much bouncing on his tiptoes a lot and, and is able to kind of blitz in and out uh, of his opponent's range. Even when his opponent is kind of throwing in return, he does a good job in terms of backing off and not really sustaining too much damage. And I think that he'll be the faster of the two here, which will help him kind of get away from the big strikes of Tafan. And then that should help him in with his counters, whether it's with the striking or whether it's takedown of the clinch so i do really like mirzakhanov here kind of surprised at the line as at where it's at uh, i don't know if there's people that are uh, naysayers of mirzakhanov and think that he's not the goods i think he's kind of the goods but i still want to see him go out there and perform you know it's been a long time i believe it's been several months now since he stepped inside the cage uh uh, for the contender series to earn his his slot inside the UFC and then he had four fights fall out uh, between that time so I want to see him go in there get his feet wet once again and then go out there and uh, secure a victory uh, and maybe then we'll see like the minus 250s minus 300s as we're normally seeing on OVs you know what I mean Mirza Khan OVs those types of guys 
But uh, yeah, I like Azamat here. I think he all works Tafan over 15 minutes uh, or he potentially finishes Tafan late in this fight. So as an official prediction, I will go with Mirzakana via decision, which is currently sitting at plus 320. I think that's a great line, a great value, especially if Mirzakana goes out there and fights the way that I think he's going to. And that's similar to how we fought Guto and Assange. You want to stay away from the big pound of him? He took him to the ground. He grinded him out. Had some success on the feet as well. But I think the majority of that win condition is going to be with the with the grappling. So I'll go uh, Mirzakhanov and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Guido Canetti versus Chris Moutinho. We got minus 145 on Moutinho and plus 125 the return on Canetti. Now, I stated this in my best bets and props article. I feel as though that this is the most volatile fight on the card. I could see a knockout for Guido Canetti, which pays plus 500. I could see a decision for Chris Moutinho, which I believe that pays closer to plus three, yeah, plus 225. I could see an over two and a half. I can see an under two and a half. Like, there's so many ways that this specific fight can go. But it all depends on the durability of both guys, right? I've seen uh, Chris Moutinho rocked and hurt in numerous occasions, not just his short notice UFC debut against Sean O'Malley, but even on his regional tape against guys like Tony Gravely and John uh, John John Ca- Johnny Campbell, I believe his name is Johnny Campbell, who fights for Bellator right now. Uh, and then on the flip side with Kennedy, like you, you see him get finished by Dana Batgaril a couple fights ago. But before that, the last time he actually had a TKO loss on his record, albeit an exhibition record, was the uh, ultimate fighter, uh, I believe it was Latin America, where he got knocked out by Alejandro Perez back in 2014. We're talking about eight, or eight years ago at this point in time. So does Kennedy really have a chin issue as most people are making it out to believe? Mana Martinez, who's a notorious finisher, was having struggles in terms of getting Kennedy out of there. Did hurt him a couple times, but never was really able to put him away. Will Moutinho be able to do that? Does Moutinho have the power to knock out Kennedy? Who knows? So the, there's two ways that I'd look to play this. Ah, I, you know what? period i am not playing this fight i just can't uh, there's too much volatility i still need to see what moutinho brings to the table against you know say what you want about Kennedy. he's probably the best fighter that moutinho has fought outside of sean o'malley right there uh, actually no sorry i, I don't want to say that because tony gravely very solid fighter in his own right um and johnny campbell a veteran of the game but again Kennedy brings like a solid leg kicking game something that moutinho struggled against uh in past fights even that fight where he was down in the first round eventually knocked out his opponent in the second round uh Ashik, I, remember, I believe the kid's name was that uh, was having success with leg kicks that's what Kennedy likes to do and then he likes to throw wide winging hooks but Moutinho is that guy that throws the shots right down the middle and he could probably thwart that forward pressure and that forward power from uh Kennedy by just throwing those shots straight down the middle like it's going to be very easy for him to do that but like, does either guy go out? I'm not 100% sure. If I'm not mistaken, the over two and a half is currently around minus 130, minus 140. So the favorite is for this fight to go to a decision or at least to go over two and a half rounds. And that's kind of where I end up leaning as well. I do think Moutinho will put together the better, uh, you know, work uh, or, or rate of work over the 15 minutes, touching up Kennedy more often than Kennedy will be touching him. But that KO of Kennedy is is just speaking to me in the back of my head at plus 500. I think that's a damn good head spot if you end up finding yourself on the Moutinho side. But 
for the love of God, I, I think this is one of those 1-800-GAMBLER fights that a lot of people like to refer to, right? I don't like to say it too often, but I feel like this is one of those fights. I get it. Kennedy's like 40, 41 years old. You should auto-fade him. But you're also getting a guy in Moutinho who leaves a lot of openings to get connected by a guy like Kennedy. And again, he could have that lead leg chewed up by Kennedy with the constant leg-kicking game that we see from him. So a lot of question marks here, a lot of volatility. I want nothing to do with this fight with my money. I'm I'm, I'm going to act like it's not even on the card when I'm uh, placing my bets, my Hail Marys, and my degenerate parlays and stuff. I want nothing to do with this fight. But you guys come to me for a prediction. You guys come to me for analysis. I believe it's going to be Moutinho landing the crisper shots down the middle. I don't think he puts out Kennedy. So I do think that we see Moutinho go out there and win this fight via decision. Dalcha Lungiambula versus Cody Brundage. We got minus 120 on Dalcha and plus 100 the return on Cody Brundage. Now, it feels like I've been hearing about Cody for so long, right? Obviously, he had the contender series fight with William Knight uh, a couple fights back where he ended up losing. Um, but even before that, we've been hearing about him. And I think it's mainly because of his relationship or the fact that he's the husband of former UFC fighter Amanda Cooper. Uh, so maybe that's why we're hearing about him a little bit more. But, you know, solid wrestling background, has a decent regional uh, run as well. But it seems once he starts taking steps up in competition, he starts to fall flat, right? Obviously, the William Knight fight, uh, he got a good position. I believe he got him to the ground, but there's a hu uh, a lot of stalemate where uh, William Knight was just successful in terms of holding him. But then once they got back to the feed, Brennage tried going for the takedown again and left his head exposed completely to get elbow to crap by, um, by, by William Knight that night. And then we saw him go down and take a loss there. He bounces back with the victory on the regional scene. I believe it was for LFA where uh, it was 1-1 going into that third round and he was a minus 300 favorite in that fight you know don't get me wrong uh, but then it managed to find I believe he got a TKO from on top no sorry he got an arm triangle choke uh, in that third round and was able to get his hand raised that night that set up his ability to take a short on his fight against Nick's Max Nick Maximov back in September at UFC 266 and Maximov just pretty much had his way with him in terms of landing takedowns when he needed to and just grinding out Brundage on the ground now we can give Brundage, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt, given the fact that he took that fight on short notice. But I think that's kind of what we're going to continue to get from him, right? On the Dalcha Lungiambula side, uh, he's 2-2 two and two in the UFC now. Hasn't really panned out to be that killer that a lot of people expected him to be, especially with coming over uh, from EFC as a champion. But, you know, one of those losses, we can chalk it up, right? He, he lost to Magomed Ankalaev, who obviously headlines this card as well. Uh, but the other loss was to his now teammate, Marc-Andre Barrio. Uh, Dolce Longyombule has gone over there to Sanford MMA now to try to, you know, provide one more career resurgence for himself or it's at least spark a resurgence in his career especially considering he's getting up there in age now at 35 years old um, I trust that they've instilled a solid game plan in him when he's not going out there and sparking opponents he does a good job in terms of engaging in the clinch dragging them to the ground and controlling them from on top just as he was able to do against uh, his last victory against Marcus Perez he could do the same thing here against Brundage right 
on paper, Brundage is the better wrestler. But some of the wrestling that I've been seeing from him leaves my head scratching, right? I feel like Dolce could absolutely take advantage of those situations. And then on the feet, I feel like Dolce's power striking ability will allow him to kind of dictate the pace of this fight. And Cody Brundage might get a little bit uh, flustered and uh, kind of hesitate in terms of trying to close the distance and trying to get any good success uh, offensively going, uh, you know, by being intimidated. It's going to be very tough for him to do that against a guy like Dolce, who throws with a ton of heat and a lot of his strikes. The, the cardio is, is a question mark for both guys, right? I, I don't know uh, if Cody really has a significant cardio advantage to the point that he's going to grind Dalcha into the mat and eventually finish him late in this fight. It's a scenario, but I feel like it's still a very volatile fight for both guys. I do lean on the Dalcha side, though, because, you know, we've seen him go up against levels in competition. Um, we've seen him not really choke too much against guys that he should beat, right? Like the Marcus Perez type of thing, whereas Cody Brundage, it doesn't seem like he's putting it together uh, yet. He could, right? Again, with the wrestling background that he has, that's usually the best base for MMA. But if he can't go out there and, and establish it, then I think he's going to fall into some trouble. But the one thing that I think will be constant in this fight is grappling. And with grappling, I think that we'll see the fight start to get pushed over the round one round mark, the second round mark, and maybe even go the full 15 minutes, right? The over two and a half is currently sitting at minus 115. I kind of like that. You know, I know Dalcha is scary and he has crazy knockout power, but if this fight's going to be taking place in the grappling and the clinching, I could absolutely see this going over that 12 and a half minute mark. So I, I like the over two and a half here. And even as a specific fight or fighter and method of victory would be the Lungiambula via decision at plus 400. I don't think that's a bad spot, right? He's beaten Marcus Perez via decision. Uh, I believe he finished a Quan Townsend late. I could be off on that, but... Uh, again, Brundage is historically difficult to put away. As long as he doesn't leave his head out there on a platter like he did against William Knight, I think this this is just going to be a lot of clinching, a lot of back and forth, and a lot of jockeying for position, which should bring this over that two and a half round mark. So uh, I'd go over two and a half, but in terms of a, a, an official prediction, I'm going to go Dalja Lungiambula via decision. Miranda Maverick versus Sabina Mazzo. We got minus 280 on Fear the Maverick and plus 225 the return on Sabina Mazzo. Now, unfortunately, this seems like it could be one of those loser leaves town types of match, especially considering that both of these women are on two fight losing streaks. You can say what you want about the questionable decision in the Miranda Maverick and Macy Barber fight from a couple fights ago, but... At the end of the day, it still shows a loss on her record, and hopefully that doesn't impact the UFC's decision to cut her, especially if she ends up on the losing end in this fight. Luckily, though, as a minus 280 favorite, I think it's more than justified that she's the heavy favorite in this fight, considering how she can approach it and the advantages she's going to have over Sabina Mazzo, who has turned out to be a bit of a bust since coming over from the LFA scene with a ton of hype around her name. She's amassed a 3-3 three three record, dropping her UFC debut to Marina Moroz, was able to pick up a couple wins, but is now finding herself on a two-fight losing skid in two very tough fights. Even the fight before the losing skid against Justine Kish, she was very close to losing that fight. Uh, I believe she was like a minute away from losing a decision. Luckily, she lands a beautiful shot to rock Justine Kish, and then she follows up with the submission, ending up uh, getting the W that night. But she was very close to losing that fight. I remember having an underdog ticket on Justine Kish and felt like I just got robbed from there. I had the food, I had the ticket ready to go to cash. 
but uh, Sabina Mazo takes it away from me. So good win for her there. But luckily, I was able to get that back with some underdog money on Alexis Davis next time out as she taught her an absolute vet lesson that night, taking her down over and over again and eventually taking home a decision victory. In her next fight against Maria Agapova, she really struggled in terms of, you know, she was the one in terms of uh, moving forward and putting the pressure on Agapova. But Agapova did a really good job in terms of staying on her back foot and letting her strikes go and really landing on Sabina Mazzo more often than not. And then eventually in that third round, we see her catch a beautiful, um, uh, it was a club and sub. I believe it was a right hand that rocks Sabina Mazzo. actually dropped Mazzo. And instead of following up with ground and pound, we saw Mazzo go out there and just go after the neck immediately. Absolute savage mode there from uh, Maria Agapova to be able to get the victory that night. Now here against uh, Maverick, I just think Mazo is going to struggle, right? Mazo needs to be at kicking range, kind of keep her opponents on the outside. That's where she has her most success. Whereas here with Maverick, we know Maverick's going to be able to either close the distance, land takedowns if she needs to, or just crash the pocket and get her own strikes off. And I think that's going to ultimately uh, hinder the confidence of Sabina Mazo. Uh, according to Sabina Mazo's IG, it looks like she's really been... Uh, uh, training her wrestling and and trying to sharpen up that part of her game but i just don't know how much of that is gonna fare in the fight here and how much it's gonna matter because of the way miranda you know blends her full mma game together i think she can you know open up those takedowns by letting her hands go first and then eventually shooting for a takedown I love the fact that uh, Miranda Maverick actually moved her camp up to Colorado. It's been a couple fights now, and she just surrounded herself with veterans of the game, right? Tisha Torres, Raquel Pennington, uh, Jessica Aguilar. I know she's not in the UFC anymore, but she has a ton of wisdom to pass down to a girl like Miranda Maverick who still has a ton of untapped potential. Uh, I love the move for her. I think she's going to go out there and show us that you know she's a much better fighter than what she showcased in her last fight. Um, and I listened to an interview of hers recently where she talked about the the Aaron Blanchfield fight and felt like she got down on herself a lot, especially after that first round. And it was the first round she had ever lost in her career. Um, and then from that, it was just an uphill battle for her. And I feel like going into that mentally uh, or, or coming out of that mentally, she's gotten stronger and it should show off in this fight against Sabina Mazzo. I'd be surprised if Sabina has much success here and I'd be even more surprised if um, Miranda Maverick stays in that kickboxing range and allows Mazzo to get her strikes off. Uh, I know Mazzo as will have a bit of a height and reach advantage in this spot but i don't think it's going to matter much as maverick will more than likely be able to crash the pocket land takedowns get this into the clinch position and eventually drag this fight to the ground there is a bit of a chance that maverick could find the finish so if there's a big plus money beside her inside the distance line i might take a little bit of a poke but i think she's more than deserving of being at this minus 280 price line and, you know, luckily there's a, a decent amount of other fights on this card where you can parlay her with, and uh, especially if you don't like playing minus 280 straight up, uh, there's a ton of other parlayable pieces on this card that you can pair her with. But uh, I like Maverick a lot in this spot. I think she cruises, and, and don't be surprised if you see a part, her a part of my lock of the night play, whether it's a straight play, whether it's a prop, or even whether it's a, a, a parlay. But I do like Maverick a lot in this spot, and I think she cruises pretty easily. So uh, let's go... I'm going to go Miranda Maverick, second or third round. Let's call it third round TKO. Um, yeah, I'm going to plant my flag there. I'm going to say she wins this fight inside the distance, and I'm going to say via TKO, via ground and pound. Damon Jackson versus Camuela Kirk. We got to pick them fight here minus 110 on both sides but the line movement on this fight has been interesting since the opener 
Uh, Kamala Kirk actually opened up as a plus 125 underdog, got bet all the way to a minus 155 favorite, and now action coming back back in on Damon Jackson brings this fight or the line back down to a minus 110. Uh, fun fight here, right? Uh, I'm, I'm I've always been big on Kamala Kirk. Um, you know, after thinking that I had bet on him in his debut as a plus 200 dog, I was mistaken. I actually predicted him to win, but never ended up pulling the trigger. Uh, I liked what I saw from him in the regional scene, right? Solid striking, uh, slick striking, a BJJ black belt. I thought that was enough for him to go out there and deal with the guy in uh, Amir Khani, who looks kind of flustered when he can't get his game going. Uh, but that close that fight was a lot closer than i remembered uh you know from memory i thought kirk actually just went in there and mopped the floor with maquan but that was a close fight maquan landed some takedowns had some good top pressure had some good top control and if damon jackson finds himself in those situations i think he can control those positions a lot better than what amir Khani was doing that night uh again on the feet damon jackson doesn't have much to offer other than maybe a couple of punches or with the kick a lot of kicking actually but it's mainly to kind of push his opponent uh, behind the warning track. And then from there, he likes to go and grab takedowns, drag the fight to the ground. His cardio is pretty good as well. And I think that's something that he has over a Maquan Americani, who was not able to sustain a grappa-heavy approach for 15 minutes, effectively at least. But he did still land a takedown in that third round, which I found very interesting. I do think that Damon Jackson will have more success doing so. I think Damon will be, you know, his nickname. He'll be the leech here by dragging Kamala Kirk to the ground and then either grabbing his back, uh, having some top time, uh, and having some success. Now, the first round against Charles Rosa last time around for Damon Jackson was a little bit sketchy, right? He struggled to get him down early in that fight. But as the fights start to wear on, that's where we saw him start to get the takedowns and start to get the, that control time against Charles Rosa, even after Rosa opened him up with a beautiful spinning back elbow before he got taken down. That, that blood was leaking everywhere. Probably one of the nastier cuts I've seen in terms of um, the amount of blood that came out of it. But Damon Jackson, the always veteran, always tough to put away. He uh, didn't lose a step after getting cut. He managed to maintain those top that top position and really grind on Charles Rosa. And I think he could do that here against Kamala Kirk as well. Again, I'm a big Kirk fan. He has ties to a lot of guys I'm close with down there at Siege MMA. But... I think he's going to struggle with the, the offensive wrestling and offensive grappling that Damon Jackson is just going to keep on him. Like, he is pressure, 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 and I feel like Camelo will uh, not have as much success dealing with that pressure uh, as past fighters have had against Jackson. So I'm going to go Damon Jackson. Uh, I do think that this will be quite a back-and-forth fight. I think both guys will have their... Uh, their 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 moments and their success but i do think it's going to be jackson that always ends up getting the better of the position and uh i see this going the full 15 minutes i see jackson kind of controlling for controlling him for the majority of this fight and winning it via decision so uh that is actually sitting at plus 205 for jackson to win via decision and that's exactly what my official prediction is going to be damon jackson via decision Trevin Jones versus Javid Basharat. We got minus 145 on the contender series, Salam Basharat, and plus 125 the return on uh, Starboy, five star, I believe his nickname is. Trevin Jones, Trevin five star Jones, I believe his nickname is. Uh, he's coming in at plus 125. Now, when I originally saw the odds for this fight, I thought there was some recency bias on it, right? From the Trevin Jones side, obviously he gets choked out by a short notice, Saeed Jokob Kakaramanov back in August. 
uh, and since then hasn't had any fights. Uh, so, you know, th there's that last image that we have of Jones getting choked out in that fight. Whereas Bashrat, on the other hand, uh, had that fight on the Contender Series uh, late last year, and he was able to just absolutely butcher his 16-0 opponent, Oren Kallon, uh, beating him up from minute one to minute 14, where he eventually got that guillotine choke finish. But you know, when you, just scanning Bashrat's record, even if you just wiki-cap this fight, you see like a lot of finishes on his record, and by many different forms as well, right? He has KOs, he has dart strokes, he has rear naked chokes, he has guillotine chokes. Like the guy has a tremendous skill set in terms of being able to finish his opponents. And, uh, you know, there might be a little bit of fade on the contender series thing, uh, contender series fighters, just because, you know, they, they might have that, that recency bias on them. But I feel as though that this is a great matchup for Bashrat, honestly. You know, Jones, he will look to come out to grapple and try to get this fight to the ground. But I was quite impressed with Bashrat's takedown defense from what I've seen on tape. And not to mention, not just his takedowns, but his abilities to scramble, get out of submissions, or even lock submissions up of his own. Jones may land a couple of takedowns here, but I think he's going to struggle in terms of holding Basharat down. And we saw last time for Jones when he goes out there and tries to have a grapple-heavy approach, he starts to slow down, right? He was very much taxed going into that second round, trying to control Saeed up against the cage, trying to get Saeed to the ground. And again, he, he paid for it by draining his gas tank a lot more than he should have. I think he's going to have to shoot for the takedowns here because I think that Basharat is a, a slightly slicker striker in this fight. He has that uh, a good idea of how to use his range effectively. Uh, he's usually all the way in or all the way out. He likes to chip out his opponents from distance, use leg kicks as well. And then when it gets, get into, gets into the grappling range, uh, he, he looks for submissions more often than not. So if Jones is slacking at all or if he goes in there for a, a desperation a takedown attempt or something, he might have to watch out for his neck because Bashrai might be able to snatch something up there as well. Basharat, normally from the London Shoot Fighters gym, if I'm not mistaken, that's where Michael Page is from originally, uh, but after he won his contender series fight late last year, he actually ended up staying in Las Vegas, right? He has a very close relationship with Amir Albazi, who's also from that gym. I believe Albazi is out here still as well. But uh, Basharat has mainly been training at Extreme Couture. So you got to believe he's had a, a ton of great training partners to go out there and drill takedown defense with and drill his game plan with. But not to mention the coaching staff that should help him kind of deal with a guy like Jones who's going to be looking to shoot more often than not. So I do like the Basharat side here. Uh, this is more of a just sit back and wait type of thing, though. I want to see him deal with a guy like Jones first, right? I have some question marks about the level of competition he was dealing with on the regional scene. And now he's going up against a legit guy here in Trevin Jones. Let's see if he can go out there and back that minus 145 price tag. Or maybe even make it look like a steal and make it look like a minus 300 performance. But couple spots I like uh Javid uh again I just want to wait and see how that plays out but the under two and a half at minus 125 I could see some violence in this fight or even fight doesn't go to decision at minus 150 I could see some violence in this fight I could see Javid forcing uh bad offense from Jones just off of just touching him up from the outside and having success with uh, um the takedown defense and that could open up you know wild exchanges between the two guys or a possible desperation takedown attempt from Jones where he gets caught in some sort of choke or a submission of some sort so uh, i like the basharat side here 
Uh, there's a couple guys that I respect that are on the Jones side. I completely get it. I completely understand it. But I feel like this Bashrat kid is is for real. Uh, I think he'll eventually crack that top 20-ish. Is he a top 15 guy? Not 100% sure. But I feel like he has the potential to be that guy if he can continue to go out there and showcase his skill set as he has over his last 11 wins that he's gotten. So uh, official prediction, I'm going to go Javid Basharat, and I'll call it second round TKO or submission. Jillian Robertson versus JJ Aldrich. We got minus 135 on Robertson and plus 115 on JJ Aldrich. Now, this line has been coming in over the last uh, couple days because Aldrich was closer to plus 140 uh, and now she's dropped around to that plus 110 range because a lot of love coming in on her and rightfully so in my opinion. However, there is one big kind of question mark that we have here in, in regards to how J.J. Aldrich is going to deal with the grapple-heavy attack. Because the last time she did was against Juliana Lima, which uh, was, let me just get the exact date here, because that was a long time ago. And I feel as though she's definitely sharpened up her skills since then. That was way back in 2016, December of 2016. So we're talking about five years ago. And now, since that fight, she's put together a 6-2 and two record with her only losses coming to Macy Barber and then Sabina Mazzo, where she was getting uh, very much outclenched in that fight and uh, having to deal with the heavy knees of Sabina Mazzo in that spot. But since that Juliana Lima fight where she gave up four takedowns, she's been able to stuff 13 out of 15 takedown attempts for, from her opponents, but I don't think any of them have that kind of... Uh, takedown uh, tenacity that Jillian Robertson has which is the big question mark in this spot right but on the feet you know JJ Aldrich does good stuff with her boxing she's very active with the striking she does a good job in terms of closing distance and landing her big strikes she was having tremendous success against Macy Barber in the striking before Macy Barber finally woke up in that second round and finally found a finish of her own right uh, but beating up Poliana Vienna, who's looking to drag that fight to the ground over and over again, very sloppily, I must say, but J.J. Aldrich did a good job, and even when she was on top of her and was in her guard, J.J. Aldrich did a really good job in terms of staying safe and staying out of danger and eventually just landing some big shots from on top to eventually get the judges to give her the, the decision that night. I can see the same thing here, right? The interesting thing to note as well, uh, J.J. Aldrich is a teammate of a fighter that just beat Jillian Robertson two fights ago in Miranda Maverick. You got to believe there's some intel that's going to be shared between those two to aid J.J. Aldrich in terms of getting her hand raised this weekend. We saw Maverick, you know, beat up Jillian Robertson on the feet and even land takedowns and stay safe enough from on top while landing big strikes from on top uh, to obviously get the judge's decision that night as well. And I could see J.J. Aldridge possibly taking that route, right? If Robertson wants to fight on the ground so bad and if she believes as much as she does off of her, uh, that in her jiu-jitsu off of her back, then J.J. Aldridge, you know, she could have a field day on top by staying safe, you know, maybe just playing half guard, trying to be heavy on top, trying to get the control time, trying to get the significant strikes like that's all possible here from Aldridge and then on the feet like I don't think it's as much of a blowout as Maverick against Robertson was but I still do think that Aldridge will have the advantage there I think she'll land the better strikes there and I think she'll make it very difficult for Robertson to close that distance and get her own takedowns going but if Robertson does get the takedown she may only need one to just control uh JJ for the majority of that round right there could be a certain transition where she ends up getting the back of Aldrich and then Aldrich just has to give up minutes there by defending the choke and ultimately giving up that round 
So there is that big question mark, right? Again, the big question mark, like I laid out at the top of this breakdown, was we just haven't seen enough of the takedown defense from J.J. Aldridge recently against somebody that's going to be going for it as much as Jillian Robertson. But I still end up on the J.J. Aldridge side. She, she's been good to me in the past. Obviously, Castro has a dog against Poliana Vienna. Whiffed as a dog against Macy Barber, although it did seem like she put on a good performance as a plus 200 dog that night. But got a lock of the night play on her and Lauren Mueller. Cashed that, uh, I believe... No, I passed on the Mazo Casey and Demopolis fights, but I definitely would have uh, hammered her in the Demopolis fight in some of my parlays. Regardless... I do like the J.J. Aldrich side here. I think she'll be able to keep this fight vertical when she needs it. And then when she needs to get the takedown and maybe even just get some control time on Robertson, maybe she goes for it late in the round with a minute left or something to just assert her dominance right off the, uh, the like as the last thing that the judges see. Maybe that's what will help her to, to get some rounds. And uh, yeah, I trust her fight IQ and her ability to, to go out there and provide a solid game plan and execute a solid game plan against a girl in Jillian Robertson who's just again she, if she doesn't get the fights to the ground how does she really find success she's a great jiu-jitsu wizard don't get me wrong she's nasty on the ground she's always submission over position like she liked to say back in the day but I think she's going to struggle here in a veteran and JJ uh, Aldrich who's really rounding out her game now and at 30 years old I think we're going to start to see the best version of JJ Aldrich we've, we've ever seen so I'm going to go with J.J. Aldrich, and I think she grinds this fight out. I think the over 2.5 is not too bad of a look either. I believe that's currently sitting around... Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Last time I saw it was around minus 120. Yeah, minus 125 for the over 2.5. I expect this to be a back-and-forth fight with both girls having success, but more so on the Aldrich side. And I don't think she has crazy knockout power, power either that she's going to be able to put Robertson out. So minus 125 on the over 2.5 not too bad for a women's MMA fight and again I've always been that guy that's on the Jillian Robertson unders just because of the way that she fights but I think that Aldrich will stay safe enough that she won't get submitted or TKO'd by anything so uh, official pick JJ Aldrich and I'm going to take her to win this fight via decision Matthew Semmelsberger versus AJ Fletcher we got minus 225 on Semmelsberger and plus 185 the return on the contender series alum AJ Fletcher now the interesting thing about this fight is the line movement right we saw Matthew Semmelsberger close to minus 250 for the majority of the week and then uh, that money started coming in on AJ Fletcher once people started doing the homework there's not too much out there in terms of AJ Fletcher's uh, professional tape. I believe there's only three fights available from what I was able to find for the tape index. And then obviously his last amateur fight, which I think is a good indication of how solid his gas tank is and how solid his ability to land takedowns and knowing when to go for takedowns is. Because I think that's going to be very important in this fight against Semmelsberger. I went back and listened to my... Um, my breakdown of Semmelsberger versus Witt, which was completely off, like way, way off. But uh, the one thing that I remember kind of saying in that fight or in that breakdown was that Semmelsberger usually struggles with guys that try to take a grapple heavy approach. We've seen him struggle with guys in the past, you know, trying to get off of his back or even trying to stop takedowns. And, uh, you know, th that's where you see that he's more so of a striker than anything. Yeah, he has a jiu-jitsu uh, background and he has, I believe he's a purple belt or a black belt, or sorry, a purple belt or a brown 
belt at this point in time, but it still seems like he struggles to get off of his back at times, maybe a little bit too content with playing off his back. And I feel like a guy in AJ Fletcher who will be at a massive height and reach disadvantage will do a really good job in terms of closing the distance with his power strikes or closing his distance, changing levels and landing those takedowns. Because if he's able to get those takedowns, I think he can do a good job in terms of controlling Summersberger on the ground and just eating up minutes off the clock. Summersberger is a sniper though from the outside with the strikes, right? We obviously saw it in his two U or sorry, two out of his three UFC wins. Actually, I guess we can throw the Carlton Minus fight into there as well. But he's best when he's able to strike and people give him the, the range to strike. Jason Witt, you know, blindly throwing leg kicks and ultimately play, pays for it by getting knocked out. And then Martin Sano doesn't even get anything off. And we see uh, Summersberger just absolutely nuke him in that fight. But the Carlton Minus fight is one where he stayed on his bicycle and was able to outstrike Carlton Minus, who just really didn't have much to offer in return. Here against Fletcher, though, you know, that, that is one of my main concerns with Fletcher being at an eight-inch reach disadvantage and a three-inch height disadvantage. Will Summersberger be able to snipe him from the outside? Uh, but from what I've seen, you know, Fletcher more often than not is a smaller guy in the cage, but he does a good job in terms of landing takedowns and closing the distance and landing his big uh, winging shots like he does from the outside. And he holds a ton of power, so I'm not counting out the possibility that he knocks out Summersberger. But I do think that this is going to be a grapple-heavy fight in favor of the underdog. I think Fletcher grounds him out time and time again, works to keep him there, uh, doesn't do enough to actually find the finish. I think Summersberger will do a good enough job with his uh, submission defense. But if the number is crazy, I wouldn't mind taking a little bit of a shot on the submission prop. But the one that I do like is the Fletcher via decision at plus 600. You know, I know the majority of his wins have come via via knockout, but I do expect him to kind of struggle to take out Summersberger here. And I think he's going to try to slow down this fight as much as possible, push uh, Summersberger up against the cage, drag the fight to the ground, and then just control him from on top. So uh, for me, I need to see a little bit more from Fletcher before I'm willing to part ways with my money and place a bet on him. But at plus 200, you know, it's tough to 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 dispute why taking a shot on him is a bad idea. So I'm still trying to figure out whether I'm going to take the shot. I might be missing the line now. I know it's coming down to about plus 185. Uh, but I think he's a damn good underdog in this spot. And I'm not 100% sure why Summersberger was the automatic chalk favorite. We can't take too much from him just starching guys in 14 and 13 seconds like he did in his last two wins. What if it goes to 15 minutes and it's not Carlton Minus across from him? Will he still have as much success? Who knows? But I do still end up on the contender series side here by going with the A.J. Fletcher side. Uh, and as an official prediction, I'm going to go with Fletcher and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Alex Pereira versus Bruno Silva. We got minus 170 on Pereira and plus 150 the return on Bruno Silva. Now, th this line kind of is a, a solid example of what hype tax does, right? You got Alex Pereira minus 170 and all he really did in his last fight was get held up against the cage against a guy in Andreas Mihalaitis who, who was sent out there as pretty much a sacrificial lamb in Alex Pereira's uh, UFC debut and he was successful in doing that in the first five minutes and then in the second round we saw why he was lined up for him because Alex Pereira was able to land that beautiful flying knee but if he didn't how would the rest of that round go or how the rest of that fight have gone? With that said, though, Mihalaitis seemed like he was visibly taxed by trying to hold Pereira in that position. And maybe it was a part of the game plan from Pereira in terms of taking the Homer Simpson approach, waiting till his opponent gassed out and then unleashed that flying knee. But 
one thing that Bruno Silva has shown throughout his career is that this guy can go as you know as long as you need him to, and more than likely you'll still be able to find the knockout. Like the Andrew Sanchez fight gets grinded on for two and a half rounds and eventually finds that finish in the third round. Even going back to his uh, M1 days, you know, he was a big underdog in a lot of these fights against these Russians, like legitimate Russians too. And he still goes out there, you know, survives the early onslaught with the grappling and the clinching and still goes out there and knocks these guys out. But uh, something of note after the Andrew Sanchez fight you see uh, Silva actually being awarded his black belt in jiu-jitsu and I think that's something that he might have to look to use here against Alex Pereira I'd be mystified if Bruno Silva goes out there and tries to go strike for strike against the guy in Alex Pereira who has devastating knockout power sure Silva has his own knockout power and I'm hoping that he won't, doesn't go out there and tries to show off that he has some big balls by trying to go out there and strike with the guy like Pereira because this is mixed martial arts at the end of the day you know th this is not a straight kickboxing match this is an MMA match so I don't think the gap is as wide between Pereira and Silva in terms of the striking especially in an MMA setting because you have the threat of the takedown because you have the threat of the clinch because you have the threat of the um, uh, jiu-jitsu right and I think that Silva will work to kind of have a game plan where he does initiate with the clinch, where he doesn't initiate with the takedowns and try to grind on uh, Pereira from on top, maybe even finding a finish from on top once the, uh, this fight gets later into the rounds, uh, maybe into the third round or something like that. But I, I think this should be, you know, closer to a pick'em or even Silva as a, as a favorite, considering he has so much more MMA experience against decent com or solid competition, right? Alex Pereira got fed a cupcake in his UFC debut and still kind of struggled in that until, of course, he landed that flying knee. So I do like Bruno Silva in this fight. I do think that we'll see him try to engage in the clinch and try to go for takedowns and really try to grind on Pereira and maybe let his strike and go a little bit later in this fight or try to drown Pereira on the ground, eventually finishing him on the ground as well. So I, I know a lot of people are going to be running to the bookie to bet the fight doesn't go to decision in this fight. I'd hold off on that. I expect it to be chalky as hell, right? Both guys are potent finishers, but we've come to know time and time again. Most recently, we had Joaquin Buckley and uh, Abdul Razak Al-San go the full 15 minutes when people didn't expect that to go there. And I was the one guy with the tinfoil hat conspiracy that we'd actually see go the full 15 minutes. Well, I'm busting out the tinfoil I had for this one too. I think it could go the full 15 minutes and it might be due to... Uh, uh, Bruno Silva going out there and trying to drag it into the grappling realm where he'll likely have more success than the guy who's coming in with the kickboxing background. Now, don't get me wrong. Sure, Pereira is working his grappling and his clinching and his takedown defense and all that stuff working with Glover Teixeira, but how much of that can you truly rub off on a guy who's been kickboxing for the majority of his career? That's where I don't understand this minus 170 line on Alex Pereira. If this fight were to have gone the full 15 minutes, I feel much safer with the Bruno Silva ticket because if Alex Pereira doesn't get the knockout, to me, that leads me to believe that Bruno Silva is having success with one, his own striking, and two, getting this into the grappling realm. So... I'm sure they'll hang a Silva via decision line at some crazy odds. I might have to take a little bit of a poke on that, but I'd be, you know, I would not be doing my job if I didn't take the plus 150 that's currently hanging on Bruno Silva. So uh, official pick 
here and more than likely a fish or dog of the night play unless something else you know comes up i've as of this recording i've only gone through five fights um if something else comes out uh you know there's nine more fights for me to get through uh i want to get through those before first before i make the play here on bruno silva but even if i do find another underdog that i like i will more than likely be taking a shot here on bruno silva so uh i'm going to be the tinfoil hack guy here i'm going to say bruno silva and i think he wins this fight via decision Drew Dober versus Terrence McKenney. We got minus 180 on Dober and plus 155 the return on Terrence McKenney, who just fought, I want to say two weeks ago. Let me get the exact date here as to when Terrence McKenney stepped in and he was able to defeat uh, Ferris Ziem via first round submission. Didn't take any damage in that fight. Uh, that was February 26th. So it's going to be about, what is that, two weeks since he had stepped inside the cage again didn't take much damage from ZM that fight was on the ground before we even knew it and then eventually he worked for that rear naked choke and got that finish that is now 11 out of 12 victories that have occurred in the first round for Terrence McKinney the guy's a finisher he has big power in his uh, hands he has big power in his kicks and obviously he has a mean submission game and takedown game as well and I think that he could do that here against Drew Dober as well Drew Dober has given up 11 takedowns in his last three fights and not even to guys that are you know highly acclaimed grapplers or wrestlers so I feel like McKinney will have some success in terms of getting him to the ground but if he's not able to finish him in that first round I do think that Dober is a potent enough finisher that he could put together some strikes and uh, good combinations to eventually get Terrence McKinney out of there in the second or third round I'm not sold on McKinney's uh, cardio, and I think especially if he's going to go out there and try to wrestle heavily, I think he's going to struggle uh, with his cardio the longer that this fight goes, and I think he'll struggle in terms of getting Drew Dober to the ground. And then if this fight's on the feet, I think Dober kind of has his way with him and eventually finds that knockout blow. Uh, Dober, a very solid fighter, right? He, he had a little bit of a career resurgence, but since then, uh, he's riding now a two-fight losing streak. You know, we got to cut him some slack for the Islam Mahajev fight. Uh, the Brad Riddell fight, close, but again, that's a fight where he gave up, I believe, three or five takedowns. Not a good look. And now he's going up against Terrence McKinney, trying to maybe save his job. I'm not sure if he has a good enough relationship with the UFC where they'll want to keep him even on a three-fight skid. But I like violence in this fight. I like the fight doesn't go to the decision. I think one of these guys is going to find the finish at a certain point, right? Either it's early with Terrence McKinney round one, which currently sits at... Um, it's always nice money on McKinney round one. And again, I'm very much hating myself for not making it an official play last time. But McKinney round one currently sits at plus 450. And then obviously after that, it's got to be Drew Dober. Even Drew Dober round three at plus 1000. I think that's a damn good spot as well. I do like the McKinney side here. I do think he gets it done early. But again, like I said, the majority of my money is going to be on the violent side here. I did have some reservations, especially with the way that Klein and Devontae Smith went last week. But I feel like this has all the makings of a fight doesn't go to the decision spot. Again, with the McKinney side, pretty much all of his fights finishing inside the distance, even his losses. And then on the Drew Dober side, a good chunk of his fights are via finish as well. And I feel like he'll take advantage of the cardio advantage he's more than likely going to have in this fight against Terrence McKinney. But I still end up on the McKinney side. Again, a lot of people are not fans of taking a guy that's usually first round or bust, but I feel like McKinney has so much to offer, especially with his grappling and his jujitsu, that he just gets guys into very sticky situations. And then from there, he's able to get his uh, either submission game going or ground and pound game going. So I'm going to go Terrence McKinney, and I think he pulls off another first round submission. Khalil Roundtree versus Carl Roberson. We got minus 130 on BBK and plus 110 on Khalil Roundtree. 
interesting fight here, right? Two primary strikers who like to throw down, like to knock out their opponents. But I got to believe that the Carl Roberson side is the more technical side here. Khalil Roundtree has obviously added great facets to his game, especially with his Muay Thai. And we obviously saw that on full display when he was able to dispatch of Eric Anders the way that he did. But since then, you know, kind of been falling flat on his face in terms of the performances that he's been having. Obviously, last time around, we saw him go out there and finish Bukowskis with a nasty uh, teep to the knee. I'm not 100% sure what you would even call it, but absolutely butchered the knee of Bukowskis there and uh, was able to get the, the win there pretty much at the halfway point of that fight. Before that, he gets out kicked and outworked by Marcin Prakneo at UFC 257. And then before that, got absolutely destroyed by Iwan Kutilaba. So uh, outside of the Modestus Bukowskis fight, it's been very difficult for Khalil to find as much success as he did in the Eric Anders fight. And I think that's because guys are, well, Iwan Kutilaba takes the fight to the ground almost immediately. And Prakneo did a good job in terms of maintaining that distance and using his kicking game way more effectively than what Khalil was able to do that night. Khalil likes to come out like a, a firecracker though, right? He he clips Modestus early and really puts the scare in Bukowskis in that fight. And we see Khalil really just take over that fight from there, right? We, we do see him start to slow down a little bit. And that's where I think a guy like Baby K could take advantage of Khalil. Uh, if Khalil wants to go out there and go balls to the wall right off the bat, I think that would be a bad idea against a guy in Carl who will do a good job in terms of nullifying the amount of damage that Khalil will have in those situations. And then as the fight starts to drag on, I think that we'll see Carl start to chip away at, with, uh, at him with his kicks, maybe with some grappling and some clinching. I, I think that will absolutely be in the in the game plan for him uh, because it would be you know absolutely crazy for him to go out there and try to strike with Khalil Roundtree who has devastating knockout power right why make it harder for yourself try to wear on him put him up against the cage drag him to the ground and that's exactly what i think you can do here roberson's been splitting time now between uh glory mma and uh in lee summit missouri obviously at james cross's gym but more recently he's been at nick catone's gym up in new jersey which has kind of been the his home for a long time uh and, and those guys are great with uh, game planning right one of his main training partners over there uh, is Corey anderson who obviously we know he has a very grapple heavy game plan in his own right whenever he goes out there and competes and i wouldn't be surprised if he tried to instill that into carl roberson this weekend so that Roberson could take home another victory as well. I do think that Roberson is a side here. I'm not 100% sold on him yet, though, but I do think he is a side. I think the consensus out there about Roberson is very low, uh, or at least the, the feeling is very low for him, just because of the last little run that he's been on, right? There, there was that whole Marvin Vittori debacle where like he missed weight and then they didn't get to fight a couple times, and then eventually when he did fight him, uh, we saw Marvin get him out of there with a rear naked choke at the ending of that first round. Uh, the Brendan Allen fight, you know, very bad IQ there in terms of playing the leg lock game against a guy who's much better at jiu-jitsu than him and then obviously we saw brendan allen take home that heel hook at the ending of that first round but this is a great stylistic matchup for him to prove and showcase that he's the better uh striker which i believe he is better technical striker that is at least uh and then the better overall mixed martial artist in terms of being able to drag the fight to the ground when he needs to get it there and i think he'll be able to do that in this spot so uh, i do like carl roberson a couple of spots that actually intrigue me is his decision line which i believe is currently sitting around uh plus uh plus 300 but even his submission line because i want to be mad at, or or even uh, surprised to see him fish for submissions right he submitted roman kopilov who you know uh is owing to in the ufc right now but uh showcased solid uh, abilities you know takedown defense all that stuff in his fight against albert duraev 
back in October. So I, I do like Roberson here. Uh, I think he has a sneaky submission game that I can pull off on Khalil here. But uh, I think the safer spot would be uh, Roberson via decision. But even Roberson money line, we're on minus 125, minus 130. Maybe you see some buyback on Khalil as the week goes on just because of the public perception of Carl is so low. Uh, but yeah, I think Carl is aside here and I'll take him to win this fight via decision. Super Sadiq Youssef going up against Alex Bruce Leroy Caceres. We got minus 235 on Sadiq Youssef and plus 190 the return on Alex Caceres. Now, this is the first fight back for Sadiq Youssef since April of last year where he t- picked up his first ever loss in the UFC, uh, second overall, uh, against Arnold Allen in a very... Uh, competitive uh, grappling, not grappling, sorry, uh, uh, very competitive striking and chess match, right? There wasn't a whole lot of action, but when there was action, it was pretty significant, especially for the Arnold Allen side. It seemed like a a methodical chess match from either side where both guys were trying to, you know, look for that opening, try to counter effectively, try to land the biggest strike. And luckily for Arnold Allen, he was the one that was actually able to do more than Sadiq Yusuf that night. Props to anybody that tailed Arnold Allen bet on my end as I did take the shot on him that night. But this is a different matchup, right? This is closer to the Andre Feely matchup for Sodiq Yusuf, if anything. We saw him in the first round of that Feely fight, land some great strikes, land big heavy strikes, really assert his dominance in that round. Then in the second round, he catch or catches or checks a kick from Andre Feely and then follows him to the ground and grinds him out for you know the remainder of that round. We didn't see anything significant there, but we did see him have positional dominance, land some good shots from on top, and that was obviously enough for him to get the the two to one scorecard. But the third round was the one that's a little bit of a red flag for me, right? It seemed like he had a lot of, uh, or or he he left a lot of his gas tank in that second round by grappling heavily with Feely that time. And again, it wasn't like there were crazy scrambles or anything like that. It was just, uh, you know, trying to maintain the position. And that seemed to suck a lot out of Yusuf because in the third round, all he was doing is throwing big power shots, telegraphing all those shots that Feely was able to evade and then obviously land his own counter strikes. And he clearly won that third round. Sadiq Yusuf, not a guy that's known to have cardio issues, right? But more often than not, you see him go out there and strike with his opponents. Not often is he forced to grapple. When he is, it's normally defensively. It's you know, digging the underhooks, it's stuff and takedowns, or getting back to his feet, and he's able to do it quickly and not have to expend a lot of energy, which is why he can go out there and continue doing what he does with the striking, and that's throwing power combinations and really putting the hurting on his opponent. That's what he did in the first round against Andre Feely, right? We see him knock out Gabriel Benitez. We see him have a very uh, solid performance against Shaman Marais, pretty much beating him to the punch, outstriking him, outlanding him, uh, hurting him a bunch of times. That's the quintessential Sadiq Yusuf performance. Now here going up against Bruce Leroy, who's on a five-fight winning streak, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the best winning streak that he's had in the UFC. Uh, but he started off his career 9-10 and 10 after coming off the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, that was the ultimate fighter with George St. Pierre and uh, Josh Koscheck way back in the day. If I'm not mistaken, that was season 11 of the ultimate fighter. And he amassed a 9 and 10 record. But now he's on a five fight winning streak, maybe against questionable competition, right? Steven Peterson, Chase Hooper, um, Kevin Kroom. Uh, he was a big dog to Sung Woo Choi, which was a very solid win. But that fight was not going well for him. He was getting countered effectively there by Choi. Choi almost finished him in that fight. And then in the second round, somehow, some way, Alex Caceres jumps on the back of uh, Choi and then eventually finds that rear naked choke. 
I'd be surprised if he's able to do something similar to Yusuf, though. The one thing that we saw him countered effectively with by Choi was anytime Caceres threw that leg kick, we saw Choi land a beautiful straight down the middle, and I could see that absolutely happening here with Sodiq Yusuf as well. I don't think he's going to give him much room to breathe. I think Yusuf is going to march him down, stalk him, and land those big shots, and I think eventually he's going to land a beautiful counter to put Alex Caceres' lights out. The last time we saw Alex Caceres knocked out was over seven years ago when he got knocked out by Francisco Rivera. Shout out to Francisco Rivera, a dog in the game. If you guys haven't watched any of his fights, go back and watch his fight with John Lindker. Absolute barn burner of a fight that only lasted one round. But getting back to this matchup, since that Francisco Rivera fight, though, I don't think we've seen uh, Caceres have to deal with a power puncher to the level of Sadiq Yusuf, which is why I do think that we'll see Yusuf eventually land that big bomb and get Alex Caceres out of there. So it was a great run for Caceres, right? I cast a solid ticket, underdog ticket on him against Chase Hooper. I gave a little bit of that money back when I took a poke on Kevin Kroom, which I obviously highly regret at this point in time. But uh, I, I think we get that money back if we want to go out there and parlay Sadiq Yusuf. I don't think it's a bad shot. Uh, if that KO line is that plus money i'll likely take an official poke on that as well but i do like Sadiq yusuf to come back and bounce back from his first ufc loss i think he knocks out alex caceres let's call it first round song yadong versus marlin marish we got minus 260 on song and plus 210 the return on marlin marish now marish trying to change things up trying to find the secret ingredient whatever's missing from him especially over the last couple of fights which have been pretty tumultuous so he decided to move out to Tiger Muay Thai in Thailand and try to just reinvigorate his mind, his body, his skills. I just don't know if that's enough for him or if they're giving out free lungs out there because that's where it seems like he's been needing over the last couple fights. Now, I'll give him a pass in the Marab Davalashvili fight. Of course, you're going to gas when you go all out, especially after hurting Marab the way that he did. And, you know, there is an argument that if it was any uh, another referee, we could possibly see Mariah actually get his hand raised that night via first round knockout. But he let his gas tank go, he gassed out, and then eventually he got knocked out in the second round by Marab really, or ground and pounded, I should say. Fight before that, decides to go on a grapple-heavy approach against Rob Font, and that seemed to gas him out in its own right, allowing Rob Font to get back to his feet eventually. You see visibly that uh, Marlon Moraes is just uh, flustered with the fact that he just couldn't hold him down. His gas tank looked like it was diminishing a lot, and Rob Font eventually landed a beautiful shot to hurt Moraes, followed up with some big ground and pound, and got him out of there as well but you know it wasn't that long ago that Marlon Moraes had a solid performance against uh, Jose Aldo over 15 minutes the, what does it come down to then right was it the poor game plan execution from him in the Rob Fawn fight choosing to grapple and exert more of his energy that night was it the going balls to the wall against Marab Davalashvili again I'm going to chalk that up to you know if any fighter was in that position even Paul Felder saying it during the commentary he goes if I had my fighter or, or opponent on skates like that in early in a fight I'm going to balls to the wall too so there are things that uh you know, Marais probably could have done differently outside of that Marab Davalashvili fight. But this stylistic matchup is just not a good one for him, right? The reason I think we saw the Jose Aldo fight go the full 15 minutes is that one, Jose Aldo probably doesn't trust his durability to the most extent, which is why that was more of a tactical fight, right? They're, they're going out there and throwing combinations at each other. There weren't any big exchanges in that fight. They were just trying to fight a clean fight. And also the the, the chin, the durability issues, um, and, and wanting to risk it. I don't think that Aldo was willing to risk it. Song Yudong, on the other hand, 
This guy throws with heat. This guy throws caution to the wind. This guy trusts his durability. He trusts his cardio. And I think that's going to be enough for him to kind of march down Marlon Moraes after the first round here and then eventually put him away later in this fight. Uh, I think it will be competitive early. I think Song needs to um, respect him early. Marlon Moraes can still crack, as we obviously saw in that Marab Devalishvili fight. But I think Song will take that shit on the chin. I think he'll be able to endure it. And I think he'll be able to start marching down um, uh, Marlon the longer that this fight goes. If he doesn't, then I can see it playing out as a 15-minute fight. But... More often than not, in fights we see Song <coughs> go out there and, and and march his opponents down and eventually find that knockout. I will say this. I know the, the Casey-Kenny fight doesn't have much bearing on how this fight goes, unless, of course, Marlon Reich goes out there and tries to grapple uh, Song here. I think that would be a very bad choice for him. But I was very impressed with the work that we saw Song put in that fight. I thought Casey was going to win that fight pretty handily. Not like Casey was a lock that I play for me or anything last night, but I still felt that he had a good enough game plan with his uh, wrestling, with his scrambles. I thought he was one of the best scramblers in that division. But Song Yudong shut all that shit down. He did a good job... Uh, uh, getting back to his feet, stuffing takedowns and letting his strikes go, and he easily won that fight. So the 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 defense, uh, the sorry, the the grappling defense that he showed in that fight against Casey Kenny gives me the confidence that if Marlon Moraes decides to take that approach here, I don't think that Marlon Moraes will be successful with that. I think Marlon needs to find a knockout early in this fight, and that's tough to do against the guy in Song Yudong, who you know has taken so many shots on the chin and continues to chug forward. I'd be surprised if Marais is going to be the one to put him out here. So uh, I like Song Yudong here, and I do think that Song uh, probably ends his night uh, in the second or third round. So uh, official prediction, let's go Song Yudong via KO in round three. Magomed Ankalaev against Tiago Santos. We got minus 490 on King Magomed Ankalaev and plus 360 the return on Tiago Maheta Santos. Now, I know King is not the nickname for uh, Magomed Ankalaev, but that is what I think of this guy. I think he is probably the best light heavyweight on planet Earth right now, and I think it's just a matter of time before he captures that gold. Putting my bias aside to Magomed Ankalaev, I still think he goes out there and smokes this version of Tiago Santos. Tiago Santos has just really not looked much like himself, at least what we've kind of come to know of him from earlier in his career, right? The guy used to be a berserker, throw big shots out there, really try to put the hurting on his opponents and try to get them out of there. Big leg kicks as well, but he's really started to fade away from that, right? We saw him very tentative in the Alexander Rakic fight. We saw him uh, land some good shots against Glover Teixeira, but just really not have enough uh, uh, of the, the grappling defense there to hold up a against Glover and he batted a pretty solid game against uh, um, uh, Johnny Walker in his last fight that was a solid performance I'll give him that but I think that we were really seeing a muzzled version of Tiago San or sorry um, Johnny Walker that night so I'm not how much I'm not sure how much we can actually take away from that um, but just turned 38 I believe um, a couple months yeah 38 two months ago uh, we're on the flip side with Uncle Live you got him around 29 years old just entering his prime uh, Tiago Santos uh, gotta believe the wear and tear is very much catching up to him if you guys remember he had that ACL surgery or double ACL surgery uh, before the Glover Teixeira fight and I think that's going to impact him a lot moving forward as well especially against a highly uh, you know highly rated fighter like Magomed Ankalaev 
Tiago Santos, he can't just accept uh, the the fighter or his opponent uh, uh, setting the pace and setting the pressure like Alexander Rakic did. But I think that Magomed Ankalaev is going to force him to accept that, right? Uh, the Volkan Uzdemir fight. Volkan thought he could set the pace by just being the heavier striker and really putting it on Magomed. But Magomed had different plans. He landed a beautiful counter on him, eventually thwarting that forward pressure from Volkan Uzdemir, and he was able to take over the rest of the fight after he dropped him in that first round. Very good, um, uh, you know, uh, audibles and changes from Magomed whenever he requires it, right? The only real, uh, you know, outside of the Paul Craig fight, uh, the only real blemish that we've really seen from him during the seven-fight winning streak is that fight against uh, Nikita Krylov where he drops that first round with relative inactivity. But after that, you know, it puts it together with takedowns and uh, cage control and and really just putting the hurting on Nikita Krylov from pretty much every single position. The guy is a technical striker. Uh, again, he may be low output at times, but that's why he has a high striking defense rate. And the fact that uh, um, he's able to go out there and land beautiful counters and kind of set the pace with his own striking style. He's very clean. I like... I know he got hit a couple of times by Volkan Uzdemir pretty clean early in that round uh, when Volkan was trying to set that pace early in that first round, I should say. But it was just a matter of time before Magomed got the, his senses about him, got the range down, got the feel down, got the patterns of Volkan Uzdemir down, and that's where he was able to start to take over, ultimately dropping him in that first round and then taking over after that. I think the same thing's going to happen here against Thiago Santos. It might be a feeling out process early here, but I'd be surprised if Thiago Santos lands anything uh, to the extent of knocking out Magomed Ankalaev. That guy has a chin of absolute granite. Seeing Volkan Uzdemir land the shots that he did on him, and Volkan's deaded a lot of guys in the past with just one shot. See, seeing Ankalaev take those shots and still chug forward and still have as much success as he did in that fight gives me uber confidence that he should go out there and just mop the floor with Thiago Santos. So the, the big question is, okay, he's obviously minus 490, right? I'm okay with people parlaying him at that spot because I think he's that much of a lock to win this fight, honestly. I really think he's a, he's a solid fighter. He is the uncrowned champ at this point in time. Again, I'm trying to keep my bias away from this, but I really think he's one of the best guys in the division, if not the best. Does he win this fight by decision? Does he take a disciplined approach, which I think he should, right? Like, why Why does he need to go balls to the wall and try to get Thiago Santos out of there? This guy is trying to continue his winning streak, and he's trying to secure that title shot. So I think the best way to play it, if you guys have access to some of those odds where you can pick round four, round five decision, that might be the best way to play this, right? Because I might be sprinkling the round four. I might be sprinkling the round five, but I ultimately think he gets his hand raised via decision. Just fighting a clean fight, Tiago Santos has had cardio issues in the past, but it seems like it's something that he's very much shored up. And given how Ankalaev fights so disciplined, doesn't fight a high-volume fight, I'm expecting this to kind of be a, a methodical chess match over 25 minutes, but more so a one-sided chess match where Tiago Santos has all pawns and one king, and uh, Ankalaev has all queens where he's just going to wipe the board and then eventually get to that king, but it might be at uh, after a 25-minute period. So... I love Ankalaev in the spot. Obviously, minus 490. I'm not any genius or sharp here by, by saying he's he's the bet in this fight. Um, but in terms of a prop, round four or five decision, if you have access to those uh, those props, I think that's a great one. But specifically the decision, I think that's how he ends up getting it done here. I'm hoping KO so that he can open up some eyes and and you know really demand a title shot after that. But how can you 
how can you dismiss this guy after the run that he's been on right now, knocking out some of the guys that he's knocked out, and now obviously dethroning a guy like Santos, who's so high up there in the rankings. So I like Magomed Ankalaev here. In terms of an official prediction, I'll go via decision. And that's a wrap on the breakdowns. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe. And if you want to show your boy a little extra love, link to the Patreon is in the description below. Five bucks a month. Not too much for us for the amount of information and analysis and work you guys are getting on the Patreon. I promise it's the most you're going to get. Also, one thing I want to say, shout out to a couple of my patrons who are apparently on other patrons too, saying that I probably put in the most amount of work uh, in regards to the analysis I'd like to give for every single fight uh, from a prize picks perspective, from betting perspective, from props perspective, everything. I guess they, they like what they're getting. Five bucks a month, link in the description below. And then obviously CoolBet. Make sure you guys check out CoolBet. Use promo code MMALOTN2 uh, and they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. All right, that's a wrap on the breakdown uh, or the episode. We have a ton of uh, great content coming to you throughout the week. Thursday, propping you up noon Eastern with my guy, MMA Fox. Uh, John, Friday, Ultimate Weigh-In Show. Don't want to announce the guest just yet, but I will later on this week. I haven't seen him anywhere in terms of being on anybody else's podcast, but this one, this one dude is very, very sharp, and I'm sure you guys are going to want to hear from him. And then lastly, uh, Fight Day Live Chat, 1 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. A ton of great content coming your way this week. Make sure you guys stay tuned. All right, good luck on your bets, and I'll see you guys throughout the week.